So, okay, wise qual- qualities of wise people that you know. Give me some uh, examples. Disciplined. Disciplined. Patient. Okay, any other ones? Experience. Yeah. Good listeners. Good listeners, I like it. There's a proverb that I go to often uh, that says, where words are many, sin is not absent. And I just remind myself of that a lot because if I start gabbing, (laughs) sin is going to come out, right? Okay, other qualities of wise people you know. Yeah, Tim. Slow to speak. Like they speak slow. (laughs) Sorry. Slow to speak. That like reminds me of like James, right? James in the New Testament. That book is like full of wisdom. It's like New Testament wisdom. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. (laughs) Keep going with James, right? Slow to anger. This is good. Understanding. Any in the back? Yeah, Dave. Oh, sorry? Thoughtful. Thoughtful. Yep. Sympathetic. Sure. Yeah. Sim. What was that? Oh, he's. <laughs> okay. Humble, humble. <laughs> I was like, man, you're nailing all my qualities, right? <laughs> humble. Okay. <laughs> good. <laughs> I like it. Okay, that's a good list. Hopefully, you have some more. There's some people in my mind that come to my mind when I think of wisdom, and uh, those people aren't usually the most impressive people. Uh, financially or business way or whatever else, but they like, when they speak, people listen because what they say is gold, right? And what they, they say isn't just stuff that gets thrown out. They tend to be older people, but not necessarily are they older people. They're just, there should be, statistically speaking, a lot more wise old people because they've had years to learn. But <laughs> how old is old? Yes, exactly. Older, <laughs> older than my kids. <laughs> But I'm going to say the one that comes to mind and I think is an absolutely essential quality of wisdom is humility. Humility is cool because you can have humility at any stage of life. Humility is really understanding who you are, who God is, and being okay with that, right? You're, under, you're okay with your limitations. That's a huge that's huge for wisdom, right? The humble person does not pick up the load that is like way too heavy cause, and then break their back because the humble person is like, can you give me a hand with this? Because I recognize my limitations, right? Humility gives proper boundaries to wisdom, right? So humility helps us to realize I can know a lot of things, but I can't know it all. And we're going to see that in Job, right? We're going to see humility also gives us a proper positioning to God. So humility helps us to recognize at the end of the day, God is God. I'm not. 
if you take any other stance than that, you cannot be wise. And so therefore, I think humility is just so inseparably linked to wisdom. And humility allows us to learn from others and from our own mistakes, right? Uh, wisdom, hopefully, a wise person learns from others' mistakes, right? You're not really wise if you have to make all the mistakes yourself. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever talked to that person that says, I just have to do it myself. And you're like, that's stupid. That is foolish and simple. Because you can't make all the mistakes that there are. Some of them result in death. Like a lot of them result in death and you don't have that many lives. So that's just absolutely foolish. Uh, but that's what some people think, right? So if you want to grow in wisdom, this is kind of a little application point. You want to grow in wisdom. Humility is essentially, is essentially required. And Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 reads this and says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. How absolutely stupid would you have to be to be a wise person and boast about it? <laughs> like if you're a wise person, by definition, you're not boasting about it. But it, like, so just in, in case you ever thought of being like, hey, I'm pretty wise, that like instantly qualifies you as not a wise person, right? Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So it's actually wise to boast in your knowledge of Jesus because of who Jesus is, right? It's basically boasting about what God has done uh, in your life because the only way you can come, come to know him and understand him is by him acting in mercy in your life. So the book of Job, we're going to go to the book of Job. Uh, book of Job is, um, I've given you a handout. This handout uh, on the one side is a funny picture. Look on the other side. <laughs> That's for later. <laughs> the author, we're unsure of the author because uh, it's, it's also likely one of the oldest written books of the Bible. Um, I actually recently had a discussion with some guys where they, they were suggesting that Job was perhaps not a real historical figure, but more of a parable. Uh, I don't buy that. I don't think that's accurate or true. And a couple of reasons why. Uh, Ezekiel 14, 14, uh, you can write that down and look it up later, but essentially the prophet there refers to Job alongside two other real historic figures, as well as James 5, verse 11 references Job, the person, and in no way, shape or form is speaking of him in the Oh, you remember the good Samaritan, like that parable Jesus told? No, he's speaking of him as a real person. So I don't think we need to uh, have all the answers as to, okay, Job was from the land of Uz in this area, this region a long time ago. I don't know that we have to have references right now to all the other people groups that invaded or whatever uh, in order to validate that Job was a real person. I think if you take Job and make him a, a story, that actually destroys the meaning of the book of Job because the whole point is that a real person experienced this real tragedy uh, and responded the way they did. The outline. So the outline has this chiastic formation that I was kind of showing you or mentioning early, earlier. And so interestingly, go home and look at this and see if it kind of matches up with what you uh, see in the text. But there's kind of, to quickly outline it, there's the prologue that starts the book of Job. This is a narrative section 
where Job, his suffering is kind of explained. Now, this is described from the omniscient view, like the all-knowing view of God. Remind yourself as you read the book of Job, Job did not know this. There's no indication in the book of Job that Job ever knew God had this conversation with Satan, however that took place, and that Satan was released to afflict Job in this way. So Job is righteous. He's declared by God, hey, Satan, have you seen anybody? Have you examined my, my servant Job, right? He's a righteous guy. You, you hear about Job and you see him being a righteous person. He has these seven sons and these three daughters. And every time they have a party, he has a sacrifice in case they did something wrong. He's like covering all his bases. He is a righteous man. He's presented as righteous. Um, I think if you even look at, is it Job 1 verse 2 uh, declares it. And so this is really important to understanding it. It says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That is intended to set the stage for everything that follows so that you recognize everything that follows is not a result of Job's sin. Kind of like the man born blind that the, uh, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. This happened so that God would be glorified. This happened in Job's life so that God would be glorified, not a result of his actions. So this presents an exception to Proverbs where it says, generally speaking, if you do good things, good things turn out. You do bad things and you get bad results. Generally speaking, Job provides the exception showing that that's not always true. So Job has seven sons, three daughters. In the end, he's going to have seven sons and three daughters. Job's flocks are lost. In the end, Job's flocks are returned to him. They're restored in duplicate. Job's family members, uh, Job's children who are brothers and sisters hold parties and they, they have death. And then these three friends come to help Job. And in the end, it's kind of paralleled. These fr three friends come then to Job for help and to restore things. So these, these, the epilogue and the prologue, which are both narrative, mirror one another. Then there's Job's introductory speech. He wishes his birth never happened. And so he covers these topics in this, this monologue covers his birth he he gets pretty low he's like it would have been just better if i never existed right he talks about offspring counting months day night look at all these different terms that show up and then you look at god's closing speech down a little further right and it talks about birth and all of life is under god's con good control so in god's answer to job when he's answering Job and saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And answers, interestingly, like God does with a lot of questions, <laughs> right? He answers and he actually like mirrored addresses like almost all of Job's topics that he brings up early, uh, earlier. So it mentions there 60 nouns and verbs totaling 120 repetitions are shared with chapter three. So very, very interesting that God, in essence, answers Job, but answers him with all these questions, right? Then there's the cycle of speeches by Job and his three older friends uh, in four verses one to 27 verses 23. These speeches focus on his terrible suffering and his innocence. Uh, his friend's speeches basically say, Job, you suffered because you sinned, which is wrong. Flat out, 100% wrong. Yes, suffering is a result of sin generally in the world, but you and I, may have times in our life, will likely have times in our life where there is suffering 
not as a result of our sin. And so pray that you don't have friends like Job. <laughs> pray that you have better friends. Center, uh, in the center is this poem about wisdom. We're going to read through that in a moment. But it essentially talks about only God knows why things are the way they are. And this is where the whole book of Job is driving. And if you understand that, you recognize, okay, it's not, the, the point of the book is not to give you every answer to suffering. The point of the book of Job is not so that when you get cancer, you can go to Job and say, the reason I'm having cancer is because dot, 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 dot. It's not meant to answer those questions. The, the, the point of Job is to point you to God is in control of all things. And there's some stuff, your you, wisdom, human wisdom, it's hitting its ceiling. And God doesn't necessarily reveal beyond that. And so you need to trust him and you need to be okay with I might not get all the answers, which is not where we like to be. It's not where Job's friends like to be either, uh, but that's where we need to end up. So that's kind of the center thing, right? And then those, so I guess those speeches by Job's three older friends are then mirrored by the cycle of speeches of Job and his younger friend, the um, Elihu, right? So, um, and so Job's speeches in that section focused on his terrible suffering and his innocence. And then essentially Job's friend Elihu, well, he is closer to the truth. He, he's, his name means, uh, I think he is the Lord or he is God. Basically he, he gets closer, but he still comes up short because he says, Job, you've sinned. Um, and so that's kind of a helpful outline. So keep that, maybe tuck that in your Bible where Job is, or just put it filed somewhere. So the next time you're reading through Job, you kind of can come back to that and put things in a framework. So that's an outline. Again, it's narrative surrounding poetry. So the narrative parts may be a little easier. Some of those poetic sections in the middle need to be understood as poetry. Characters in the story, right? There's God, obviously, and Satan in the beginning. Uh, we see those, uh, those interacting. Um, there's Job, this righteous man, and then Job's three friends, these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are better than me. I'm just going to say it straight up. Uh, right in the beginning of Job, if you turn to Job 2, you're going to see Job's friends come. Job 2, verse 11. This is after Job has suffered unspeakable disaster. I can't even, I cannot even begin to fathom what it would be like to have somebody come up and say the things that Job had said to him one after another. I'd be, I'd have passed out just from shock of hearing this. Job's friends surround him. This is what friends do. This is what they should do. The friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him. They came each from his own place. A little later, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Good choice. Great move as the friends, right? And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, a sign of their, their mutual suffering and kind of this, this sense of mourning. Yep, exactly. When they were mourning and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word for they saw that it was suffering was very great. That's gold. That, that's really good. I have never sat with somebody for seven days and never opened my mouth. That's just not going to happen. So I'm saying right at the outset, well, these guys say a lot of stuff later on that we can look at and say, this is totally not appropriate to say they started out really well. 
Unfortunately, they open their mouth, <laughs> right? <laughs> Unfortunately, they open their mouth. But one way we look at this, we can look at it, and hopefully you see it from several angles. You see yourself in the position of Job as the one suffering and perhaps being like, why God, why am I suffering? But hopefully perhaps you also see yourself in some of Job's friends and you're like, I'm the guy walking into somebody else's life who's suffering. And Job, this wisdom is here to show you <laughs> when you walk by somebody, sit and just shut up. <laughs> Don't say anything. It's so, so hard. And the reason it's so hard, we all know the reason it's so hard. If you've been at a funeral ever, you, you just want to say something to fix it. You just want to, you want it to be, you want it to feel better, but that doesn't work, right? Um, I was talking this afternoon, uh, I think, it was, was it with you, Adam? Yeah, I think I was talking with Adam and I was just mentioning how uh, if a family's lost a young child um, or a- anybody really, if they've lost somebody, in my instinctive reaction, I would, next time I see them, totally avoid talking about that person. I would just be like, I'm not bringing it up because I don't want to resurface the emotion. Months down the road, I wouldn't bring up their name because I don't want to resurface the emotion. I don't want to cause them to all of a sudden have a scene or something like that. Uh, But over the years, kind of have learned, that's actually, from grieving families have told me, that's actually the opposite of what they want. Because when you don't bring up their name, they think you've just moved on and forgotten about them and don't care about their, their lost child or lost husband or lost wife. They actually want that memory to remain. And so the best thing you can do is actually talk about a great experience you had with that person that's passed. And that's just, man, that kind of wisdom is, it's contrary to my instincts. And so that's where you kind of go for wisdom, right? My instinct in a situation like Job and his friends is I want to talk. I want to talk. And I've, I've witnessed family members who've suffered and at one time thought, maybe there's sin in their life. I'm so glad I never said it to them, <laughs> but, but it is a question. Okay. Some, some suffering is a result of sin. So you might need to have that conversation once, but like drop it after they say, no, that's not the issue. Like let that be between them and God. Right. Uh, and so his friends better than me, but still made a mistake. And then there's a the young guy, Elihu, right? Um, his name does mean he is God. He comes on the scene, and I can actually picture myself in this scene, probably the clearest. He comes on the scene, he stays quiet for the whole first book, chapters of the book. And finally, there's kind of like a break, and he's like, okay, I just got to say something. You guys are all wet. You guys are all wrong. You old folks don't know what you're talking about. Let me speak up for God as the, the representative, right? And he tries to speak and come across with all this wisdom, and he still falls short of doing what needs to be done, saying the things that actually probably don't need to be said, right? And so just recognize this. Some interpretive keys, as I mentioned, not all that is said is true. So it's very important to pay attention to who's speaking as you're reading through it and to read the whole thing. Do not read Psalm or Job 1 through 15 and stop. Like read the whole thing, read the beginning, read the end, frame it in. Job is righteous. So anytime they say it's a result of your sin, they're wrong. Some of the things they say are true. And you can look at other places in scripture where they take proverbial wisdom, essentially, and they apply it to Job's life and say, you're suffering because you made this bad decision. They actually accuse Job of sending widows away with nothing. Job did not do that. He's righteous in God's eyes. And so they're wrong. He did not do that. But they're trying to come up 
in their perspective to understand why, why could somebody suffer like this? Nobody suffers like this unless they're in the wrong. So they were seeing the world in a very black and white. You're either a sinner or you're not. And if you're a sinner, you suffer. And if you're not, you're not suffering. Uh, and they didn't realize this gray area of sometimes bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, that kind of idea. So remember, it's not all true. Read the entire story. Uh, Job does ask some questions that are not basically appropriate. He calls on, he basically calls out God and calls into question God's decision in how he runs the universe. Not really a good move because God is sovereign. And that's why God responds to him and says, uh-huh, where were you, right? When I laid the foundations of the earth, like God made it all and knows all. And, and interestingly does not tip his hand to Job to say, I actually allowed Satan to do this to you in a sense to test you. He doesn't show Job that. Now we see that, uh, but it's interesting for Job. He didn't have that perspective. So we remember the perspective and remember that Job did not know that. And so as you're reading Job uh, and don't, don't basically don't throw any of them under the bus because it could be you very easily. Yep. Chris, I, I brought it up in um, life group. How is an aspiring Christian who falls far short of how Job is described ever to live with what happens to him and our God who makes a deal with the devil on such a fine gentleman? Right. Hell. I yeah. think that is absolutely terrorizing. Yeah. Um, as you struggle. Yeah. Whoa. Right. As you read through that, you're like, okay, let's make it real into our situation. Something back in hand. Mm -hmm. The pain. Yeah. That's exactly what we can't explain. And that's the whole book of Job, right? The, the, you're feeling exactly what you should be feeling. You're feeling the tension of Job's like, how is this possible? God, like something's not right. And you're right. Something isn't right. We live in a broken, sinful world and it will not always be that way. But this is where we're reaching the limit of our human wisdom. And so if I tried to give you an answer, I, I'd be trying to do what his, his friends are doing. I'd be trying to answer the problem of evil in a way that I can't. I can give, I can give truth from scripture, Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That's truth. We drive that stake hard in the ground, but I'm never quoting that scripture at somebody's funeral who just lost a child. Never. That like, there's truth at the right time. So this is a classroom setting, but I recognize in a classroom setting, there's stuff going on in your life that I'm, I, I'm not privy to. I don't know what's going on. Some of you could have just lost a child, lost a loved one, could have just got diagnosed with cancer, could have just uh, found out a friend has severe mental illness or whatever, lost your job. I, I don't know. So in a classroom, I can talk a little bit more. Here's the truth, whatever else. But if I knew your situation, I would probably approach it quite a bit different, right? The whole, the classroom's not the hospital room kind of, they're, they're different things. But basically what we do when we read through Job is we drive a stake in the ground of God is sovereign. Nothing happens to Job that God 
in his divine wisdom does not allow. I can't explain how God in his divine wisdom could allow Job's seven children who clearly sinned at times, but if they were anything like cut from the same cloth as their dad, maybe we're okay kids. If those seven children just got wiped out for Job to lose seven kids, like, so Job says something that is the, the closest thing that we can get to hanging on to. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll return, which for me um, reminds me today is a gift. My children are a gift. My finances are a gift. My house is a gift. None of it's deserved. And so if God chooses to remove those things, he is entirely, he has, it's his prerogative to do that. That's really, really easy to say when you have all those things. It's totally different. So the fact that Job responded that way is powerful. But I'm not going to step on the ground of saying this is why it happened and why God behaves that way or why God allows that. But what I will do is I'll say, God is sovereign. God is good. He works it out for the good of those who love him. And I'll rest in stories like Joseph, who horrible, awful things happened to Joseph. If you remember his whole family, like with minus his dad and one brother, were out to get him and would have killed him. But then they decided, we'll just opt for the, we'll sell him, <laughs> right? If my, if my siblings sold me, that'd traumatize me for life. And yet one day, God in his grace reveals to Joseph that God intended it for good, even though they intended it for harm. And so Joseph, in that case, gets a little glimpse into God's plan. But that, like, I guess is the key that maybe for me unlocks and say, says, somewhere in God's plan, which I may not see this side of eternity, he's working out for the good of those who love him. And he's good. Scripture is absolutely certain he's good. So in the face of all things shouting out to me, God is not good. I'm going to hold on to the truth that he is good, Lord willing. And so that's where I think friends need to come around. And maybe what Job's friends should have said if they'd spoke, spoken up was, God is good. We're standing with you. We don't know why this is happening, but we're here. And just that. What were you going to say, David? Perspective, right? Yes. Yeah. The people is very important in this area about apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Revelation. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, the end. We're going to see where we're going. Yeah. So it's going to be great. It doesn't matter what happened here. Yeah. Because 
I had to be there. Yeah. Not here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you pit those things in, in, uh, I guess, perspective. Um, one thing that having the advantage of the New Testament and seeing the full picture that provides comfort again is that God himself sent his son to endure far worse than any of us will ever endure, far worse than Job endured um, because he bare, bore the weight of the entire sin of the human population. So God himself feels the pain and through that is bringing about restoration. So at least we have a comfort in knowing God is not some off on the sidelines. Oh, that hurts for you. I'm, I'm sorry about that. That's what I chose to do, but that hurts for you. It's like he intimately knows the pain that Job felt and intimately knows the pain uh, that each one of us feel or have felt uh, in every way, shape, and form. Job 28, where it focuses at the center, will also provide for us kind of the conclusion that Job came uh, came to. And essentially, he talks about where is wisdom found? Where is wisdom found, right? Uh, wisdom can't be bought for gold. It can't be valued. Where does wisdom come from? Verse 20, Job 29, verse 20. From where does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. In other words, saying true, like the, the true ultimate source of wisdom is beyond us. There is some wisdom that we can have, but ultimately from where it comes, it's beyond where we can understand, right? Verse 23, God understands the way to it and he knows its place for he looked to the end of the earth and looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it and he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So that really, I believe, is the central, central focus. Um, in Job 19, he also says, I know my redeemer lives, uh, which is such a key truth of scripture as well that you can kind of track through that God's his redeemer. He knows he, he's holding out faith in him. And I think this is just where we get to this point where we say faith is walking by sight or walking by faith and not by sight. Um, and so that doesn't, doesn't make it any easier for those of us here. But I think this is where drive the stakes of truth in and then just surround people that are in that time and place of suffering with your presence and nothing more. Not your wisdom, because your wisdom's reached its ceiling. It's not going to answer the question for them. But just communicate to them and follow through on it. I'm here for you. Just talk when you need to talk. And that's it. And your discomfort will encourage them. <laughs> your discomfort in their situation, I believe. I'm going to keep moving on. 
that's really heavy. I feel like we could spend a lot of time there. And actually, maybe just before we move on, I'm actually going to take a moment and pray. Um, but we still have a couple of things more I want to um, share from God's word. But I, I think it might be appropriate to just pray and lift up the unspoken requests in the room to God. So, Lord, we just thank you for who you are, that your word communicates you are true and living, you're sovereign and in control, and God, that you love us and that you work out all things for our good, even when we don't see it. God, there's uh, people in this room uh, who have suffered far more than uh, the average individual, perhaps, and who know intimately pain and know intimately loss, and you are not unaware of that. We may be, Lord, but you and your sovereignty know that and you care about it. Uh, and Lord, you want to meet us in that time of need and comfort us. And so I just pray that you would tonight. I pray that you would help us to have faith uh, when we don't see. Help us to have trust when every other voice is screaming at us that you're not good and that you don't exist. And Lord, would you help us to bear patiently with those uh, around us who are perhaps suffering and to walk the journey with them. And Lord, we pray that one day when we're in eternity with you, um, we will be able to look back on times like this and see how you're working. Uh, but even if you choose not to reveal that to us, God, in your wisdom, you know why. And we are going to say, whether we like it or not, Lord, that we're going to trust you with that because uh, we recognize you ultimately are God uh, and we are not. And so, um, Lord, just help us to embrace that truth in faith in Jesus name. Amen. Please do know, um, this is why the body of Christ is so important. And so if there's something tonight that you're struggling and dealing with, please just be sensitive to the people around you and, uh, just ask the genuine, Hey, how's it going? And just listen in. I think that's what we take and we hopefully learn from Job. Some takeaways. Suffering is hard. God's sovereign. Man la asks a lot of the wrong questions. God isn't required to show his hand and his moves, but he expects us to trust him in all things. It's okay to talk about things with God. In the end, Job is vindicated. God said he's righteous. And embrace the fact that it's not all black and white and there's some gray. And that is the hardest thing for a, a black and white kind of person like myself. We have Song of Solomon, which feels inappropriate to go into <laughs> after the weight of the discussion we've had. Song of Solomon is by far the most hotly debated wisdom literature, which I started reading and researching and felt woefully inadequate to communicate this to you. And so there is a lot more that could be said, and I don't know that we have time to say <laughs> tons. So Song of Solomon, real quickly, the author is possibly Solomon. Some have called into question this because Solomon's track record with marriage is deplorable. This is a good notice. You can be the wisest person to ever walk the earth at one point and still fall terribly. So in your wisdom, don't get proud. Solomon was the wisest person, but clearly at some point walked from that wisdom and worshiped false gods or embraced at least having these high places for the false gods, embraced 
lots of women <laughs> and totally inappropriate. And so some have called into question whether he wrote that. I think probably the traditional understanding would be that he did. Uh, but we would understand if you're, you're curious about that. And so you can research that. There's a couple characters in it. There's the shepherdess, the shepherd boy, which some would say is Solomon and some would not. I'm inclined to think he is Solomon. Uh, but again, there's so much more uh, research, I guess, that could be done. And then there's the others. So there's this dialogue going back, very poetic, between Solomon or the shepherd boy and this shepherdess, this love relationship that goes on. And uh, it's quite erotic. I can remember as a, as a kid being in my cousin's church, and it was his fault. Uh, the sermon was boring. And so as like probably an eight-year-old boy, he pulled out the Bible, turned to Song of Solomon, and we read through the entire thing, giggling and laughing, <laughs> and totally got people looking at us, reading through like, it says breasts in the Bible, <laughs> right? <laughs> Anyways, having a blast reading through it. Actually, I think if I remember correctly, this was restricted in Jewish circles <laughs> from young children, uh, that they weren't supposed to read it until a certain age because of the erotic nature of the text. Um, there is a lot of debate, uh, or probably not so much in our day as there was even 20 years ago, as to who are the players supposed to represent. So many, many times over history, this was allegorized, saying this is about either God and Israel or Christ and the church, or um, I was told even in some Catholic beliefs, maybe that this was Christ and Mary, uh, which is kind of weird. I don't, I don't totally understand that. Uh, but understandably, people would say this is Christ and the church because a lot of prophetic texts talk about God's relationship with Israel or uh, in the New Covenant, you know, Ephesians 5, it's talked about the wife and the husband relationship mirroring Christ and the church. Uh, and so it's understandable that people would go there. But when you read through um, the text and read the erotic language, um, that's not mirrored anywhere in the prophets or the new covenant. And so while God's relationship with the church is like that of a husband to a wife, I think there's good evidence to say that that's really an unnecessary interpretation of this. This is about God celebrating sexual intimacy between a man and a woman in the confines of heterosexual, sexual, monogamous marriage. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's something that we don't need to shy away from. So you guys all got a pamphlet that you can kind of look at later. He used lots of poetic imagery, which makes no sense if you take it literally, but it's kind of fun to see it. Um, don't use this on your next date uh, with your spouse. It does not work. <laughs> Tested and true. Uh, her sheep, her, her teeth are not like sheep. That's not really a flattering thing, um, but lots of poetic devices. So real quick application. Uh, essentially, you read through it and you're supposed to come to the conclusion, sex is a great gift from God within the confines of marriage. Don't awaken love before it so desires is hugely helpful for young people that are not married uh, to remember. Um, I've said this to our young adults group over and over again. Our world is saturated with sex, saturated to the brim with sex. So much so that I thought, I'm going to do a quick survey of the top 40 songs, uh, American Top 40, and see how many are about sex. And the majority of them are. Some of them very, very explicit, like Song of Solomon type explicit talking, more explicit talking about sex. And so one interesting kind of thing for you that are married in the class to think about, our young people have only seen 
if they're watching TV, the only displays of sex that they've ever seen are unbiblical displays of sex. Because everything on the screen is unbiblical because sex isn't meant to be seen on screen. So just imagine, I don't know what culture you grew up in or how things were, but for our young people growing up today, they have like, like half of a percent of their perspective on sexuality coming from biblical sources and 99.5 or 9% coming from unbiblical sources and visual sources where they see it. And so I'm not advocating that we should put our sex lives on display, but at the same degree, we should, as married couples, display and talk in veiled terms about sex being awesome in marriage. So much so that young adults looking are like, that's their sex life is great. Right. And so hopefully it is don't, don't false advertise. Right. But I think we can almost be a little bit too proper that we don't want to kind of, it's almost like if you're proper, it's like after you get married and you're a mature Christian, like sex, yeah, sure. Sex happens, but it, it, it's really not too, it's not too steamy or amazing. Right. And so that they kind of envy the wicked thinking it's only unmarried sex. That's awesome. Right? So let's just kind of maybe help to change the tide. I think Song of Solomon is pretty awesome in that account where young people can read and say, this is, this is awesome. It's meant to be an awesome gift displayed from God. And so, you know, I, I heard a friend tell me once, he's like, this guy came up and asked me, how's my sex life? And I thought that was a super inappropriate question. And I'm like, it probably is. But next time, the way you should answer him and just say, it's enviable. <laughs> and then just leave it at that, right? So that they're like, oh man, right? That's great. It's enviable. So if you want to know, it's enviable, <laughs> right? So paint a positive picture of sex for our young adults, uh, young people, young, young individuals, uh, so that they see what a great and awesome gift it is from God. Ecclesiastes, I've got lots to say about that, but I can't say it all because we're out of time. But I will say this. The last two verses, or last few verses of um, Ecclesiastes really pull it all together. There's two perspectives on Ecclesiastes. Some Christians look at Ecclesiastes and say, uh, it says over and over, vanity, vanity, life is all vanity. Under the sun, it's just awful. And some people will look at that and say, that is a life apart from recognition of God's oversight into the world. It's an under the sun perspective. And yeah, if you don't believe God, that's how you would see life, right? Just eat, drink, be merry, enjoy the toil of your labor, and that's it. There are other Christians, I wasn't really so much aware of this because I, I would kind of lean to that perspective. There's other Christians that actually say, no, like a lot of Ecclesiastes is how we should see things, recognizing that whether you're wealthy or poor, we all die. Whether you're super wise or not wise, we all die. And so maybe there's some uh, wisdom in there, but the last two or last few verses of Ecclesiastes, I'll read for you and then kind of leave it with there. Uh, they, I think, paint the picture that mostly this guy has been describing a life that is, is apart from understanding God's involvement. So he says this here, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, secret thing whether good or or evil. And so while there is lots of wisdom throughout Ecclesiastes, some of it I believe is intended to be like a foil, kind of like a, a negative picture of where you go 
when you don't believe in God's involvement. And I think for me, reading through Ecclesiastes as a young person was hugely helpful because I'm like, I'm not going to live my life working for wealth because the Bible is right there saying one man works to acquire all of this. Then in one bad venture, it's all gone. And I've heard stories of that. My, my father-in-law's next door neighbor, years and years and years saved for retirement. Unfortunately, it didn't invest wisely. The stock markets took a turn. And just as he was ready to retire, he went from a $1 million portfolio to a $250,000 portfolio in a week. Like, ooh, right? You're like, all those years, sleepless nights, work, 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 and it's gone. And so just remember that, right? We work for God's glory, right? And so there is some value in enjoying the work that you do and the toil. I think that's a real blessing. Uh, but at the same time, don't find ultimate fulfillment in your work or in your pursuit of knowledge because those things, you know, you could be the super wisest person on the earth and it's not bad, it's good. The way of wisdom is better than the way of folly, Ecclesiastes tells us. But the way of wisdom is not the end in itself. The end is to glorify God in all that we do. And so I believe that is like a huge key for you uh, for interpreting it. So sorry, there's not time for like Q&A. I'll stick around if you're interested. Uh, thank you for being an attentive class and hopefully engaging some really good uh, thoughts and discussions. And let me just close it off with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who embodies it perfectly, who we follow and imitate and who we have given our lives to. We pray, Lord, that each and every day you would help us to use the wisdom of your word, apply it skillfully in the small decisions of our life. Even as we go out of here tonight, Lord, and we're talking with someone on the way home or we're making decisions about tomorrow, we pray that we would put wisdom into practice. Uh, biblical wisdom, not necessarily just earthly wisdom, but wisdom that um, is your truth applied skillfully to life so that we live a life that's God glorifying. Thank you so much for each one here. And would you uh, continue to minister to us through your word and through your people this week in Jesus name. Amen.